again, everybody. Uh, Martin Keelan again here from the EPIC conference. And I'm, I would like to say I'm delighted to have my current guest with me, but that would be a lie because I'm absolutely over the moon. Somebody I've been wanting to talk to for absolutely ages. I read all her papers and it's uh, Dr. Amy Mathers from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, where she works in the pathology department, although she has some history in the UK. She works extensively with places like Oxford and, uh, and Manchester as well. Uh, and we know many of her papers from the water area, but today she's been involved in a session on whole genome sequencing and can it really help us? And I have to say, when it when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of molecular work, it tends to make my head hurt a little bit. Um, so, Amy, whole genome sequencing, is it the answer to infection prevention and control problems, and is it the future going forward? So... Um... <clears throat> I'm a big fan of whole genome sequencing because it's a lot of fun to use. Um, But I think when you really get down to it, unless you have an outstanding, impeccable infection control program, it doesn't, it's probably not the best place to put resources in a busy world of finite resources. So it's not going to work for anyone then? Having said that, (laughs) there are use cases for it where it makes a lot of sense. Say, um, in a, in a, you know, one use case that gets used a lot is in a neonatal ICU with a staph aureus outbreak. However, if you see staph aureus in a neonatal ICU, you're probably doing something about it, whether or not there's one case or three cases. And, yeah. you know, finding out that they're all related after the fact may or may not be all that helpful um, because you're, you're worried and you're doubling down on infection control interventions anyway. But I think that whole genome sequencing really can be a tool when you're scratching your head and you can't make links between certain organisms to help give you um, evidence and links between patients that you might not have otherwise. Yeah. So, um, you know, my focus was on plasmids today, which I don't think that's ready for prime time, but there are some organisms where um, it could be really useful. I mean, going back in my past, because I've been around a long time, I mean, I come from an era where norovirus, if you had an outbreak, you'd send some specimens off to the local public health lab, and eventually somebody would look at it down an electron microscope, and they'd tell you six weeks later you had an outbreak, but by which time you've sort of moved on. And this is going to be a lot quicker, so possibly it's going to be a little bit better for prime time. Now, we're all used to looking for, ah, that looks like the same organism as that one, and, you know, again, in my early days, you'd maybe look at the antibiogram, and that looks fairly similar, but... These days, we're talking about plasmid transmissions. So you've got a lot of different species of organisms, but it's actually the same outbreak. And how do we cope with that going forward? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, Um, you know, whole genome sequencing can give you a lot of resolution for within hospital. For example, um, you know, Staph aureus in the United States, a lot of the clones are are related at sort of a, a higher level. But to really understand in-hospital transmission, you couldn't do much other molecular typing short of whole genome sequencing would give you more resolution on patient-to-patient transmission with an organism like that. But as you've stated, plasmids, um, although it's not, it, the, the science has not been worked out exactly on how to understand plasmid transmission using whole genome sequencing, there's no real hope of trying to sort it out with any other technique. (laughs) And so, um, you know, and I think uh, the question was raised earlier today about whether or not it's just best to track the gene. And I do think for some of the carbapenem, carbapenemase genes Mm -hmm. in Enterobacterialis, that is the way to go. And that's actually what we did for a long time before we had whole genome sequencing. We just did 
our entire outbreak was hinged on the fact that we tracked that gene no matter the organism. And we could do that because we had the luxury of not having any of that gene circulating in our community. Okay. And so we knew if we saw that gene, it was hospital acquired. Okay. And you had some explaining to do. Okay. I mean, you had a nice chart over the numbers going up and up and up over a long period of time. So even then you knew about it, it was still very difficult to control. Correct. Because we couldn't understand... Again, back to just even using antibiograms or sort of poor man tools for yeah, like, yeah. how do you understand if these organisms are related? That was sort of not a tool we could use because we had so many different species and so many different clones yeah. that were all picking up the same plasmid. But it was that gene that we knew was coming from somewhere. And so we had for a very long time thought it was um, hospitalized patients that we were missing in our silent carriage program and in our screening program. And it turned out... As you know, that it was an environmental reservoir um, associated with wastewater plumbing. I mean, that's that was the point of today, really. I, I, you know, you said that traditional routes of transmission don't really explain this, and so we're looking down plug holes now and yep. uh, answering some questions there. I think, and, yep. and you put up a nice photograph of look at all the patient care items that are actually stored on the sink <laughs> side. So it's almost you can't imagine that somebody's not picking up. There was a fantastic paper where you put the camera over the top of the sink and looked at the activities, and I think hand hygiene was was under four percent. I think in, in many of the cases of of the activities at the sink. Yep, that's. Education, I think. Yes, it? it is education. And I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot to be gained. And I think the UK is, is a bit better. If I was just having worked in both places, you guys are a bit better about sink education. This sink is only for hand hygiene. Don't you dare do anything else in this sink. <laughs> there's signs everywhere. In the US, it's like being in a hotel and people just think it's part of the furniture. Yeah. And so they put food items on the edge of the sink. They put cell phones there. They put all sorts of things. They use it to dump, you know, half-drank coffee and whatnot, nutrients down the drain. And so I think we have a long way to go with education around sinks and changing the way we think about sink use in the hospital. Uh, Absolutely. But if you look at practice, you know, the patient wants to go out to a bathroom to wash themselves. So the nurse says to be helpful, I'll take all your gear out for you. And where's the surface they're going to put things? They'll put the toothbrush, toothpaste and face flannel in the sink, yes. ready for the patient to use, neatly pre-contaminating it with whatever's down the sink. So it's not <laughs> probably, maybe we still have some way to go when it comes to education, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, go ahead. No, I mean, it's, it's, so it's biofilm within the sink. Mm-hmm. People have tried taking all the sinks out. Yeah. So used Hotman in the Netherlands has done that. Or I've seen mechanisms where you preheat the sink or you can pop chemicals down it. Are we anywhere near getting near a solution to actually, you know, because I, I actually don't see sinks not becoming contaminated. Yeah. Because to me, if I find a carbapenemase producer in the sink, I'm hopeful it's got there because people are washing their hands, which is the whole point of the sink. So I, I think we can rule out the fact that we aren't going to con- keep continually contaminating the sink. So w- once it's in there, if it's an outbreak, or there's a, a, an isolation facility, patient goes home, we cl- clean everything else in the room to within an inch of its life and possibly hydrogen peroxide vapour and possibly UV or whatever, we don't do much with the sink. Is there something we could routinely do, do you think? Is there any opportunity for that in the future? Well, I mean, I think, I think you raise a good point in that um, we can't really clean below the drain. Mm. And as you know, it's that biofilm, that scummy... You know, if you've pulled apart a sink at your house, it's, term. Yeah. <laughs> you 
you know, it's pretty, it, it's biofilm. Like if you want to know what biofilm looks like in yeah. mass, yeah. pull the drain out of your sink and, and look at, you know, what's on there. That sort of Or gooey. go to a student house and look at the plates <laughs> in the sink. That's fairly effective as well. So, so, and it's not a cleanable surface. We can't take apart. I mean, there, there actually are products or there have been ideas of like, should we have a disposable drain plate mm-hmm. and that we can exchange on a, on a routine basis. But I don't know that that's a scalable solution, to be honest. We do need water in hospitals at the end of the day. Yeah. We, we have to be able to wash our hands. We have to be able to, to have water um, for many uses in healthcare. And so we just have to be really smart about how we do it. And so I don't, think there is a solution that I've seen that will meet all needs of we can safely have sinks in the hospital, worry-free, no problemo, um, just yet. I think we've got to be really creative about how we're using the sinks and just things like where is the sink located in terms of the patient? Are we allowing patient care items getting close to the sink? You know, we've seen very little transmission actually direct onto hands. So if you if you have a contaminated drain and you wash your hands mm-hmm. with good soap and water and you walk away paper towel dry, we have not detected those organisms on the hands of healthcare workers, even when we know it's in the drain. What I think happens is what you described is you put the toothbrush right next to the drain yeah. and then yeah. it gets on that yeah. instrument and then you go and you brush your teeth and now you're colonized with, you know, the the organism de jour and the problem is is these environmental organisms that are great at forming biofilms in the drain they can live there as you saw in our study today like we recognized them in 2013 and we are 2021 and i just sampled last week and we still have them yeah it's a bit like your mother-in-law i'm afraid once they move in it's very difficult to get them to move out again so yeah okay So, I mean, this is probably explains why an outbreak can ramble on for years with just the odd new case, and yeah. we haven't really quite got it out of the system. Um, and the other thing is, of course, water so- uh, water disposal areas is, is not just a hand sink, is it? I mean, if I look at clinical practice, what well, not nursing practice, actually, if I went back to when I started nursing in 1803, a patient would often get in a bath, but the baths are all gone, and now it's a shower. So in a bath, whatever's in the sink, probably a little bit is in the bath water, but it's hugely diluted. Mm-hmm. Now the patient's actually sanding on the sink drain and the shower tray underneath, and nobody ever cleans the shower tray or after a shower. So there's often potential contamination. I know when I've dealt with the sink trap at home, there's a lot of gunk mm-hmm. and hair and everything down there. So it, uh, do you think showers are... are potentially an issue for us as well because i've not seen too much of that in the literature it's all been about sinks yeah and i think the shower slightly different challenge so we we know that our shower drains are colonized with kpc at our institution i haven't published that so this is first hot off the press (laughs) but not a surprise because of course the patient's gravity being water running down over the anal area is probably going to go down and down the drain so and to be honest if you look at the way that wastewater plumbing is designed in most hospitals or most buildings in developed countries are probably it's all gravity there's no valves Mm. between and all the plumbing connects yeah so unlike our municipal water where we've thought tons about how it's coming and are there dead legs and all the things to prevent legionella and all the things that we do 
Um, there's been very little thought to how is the biofilm in the wastewater connected and the antibiotic pressure that goes down, that's all connected. You know, if, if you've got somebody who's on kefapim is how you would say it, I would say cefapim, you, you know, that two grams given to a patient goes out in their urine as two grams (laughs) and it goes right down into the wastewater stream. And again, in the UK, it seems that there's a little bit more brown water, um, gray water separation, which is probably helpful, but that's not true in the U S so it's all connected. And so you can have growth upward between plumbing fixtures and up into the shower drains, whether it got there from the patient showering or, um, got there kind of retrograde from growth. I think both are happening. The thing I would say about showers is there has definitely been outbreaks described. Um, in Australia, there was a burn unit where the only okay. thing they could link to was yeah. a vim that was a shower drain. Okay. And when they started intervening on that shower, they, they saw a decreased number of cases. Um, shower drains in typical patients, to me, are a little bit lower risk just because of the feet. You know, it's it's feet and it's not quite, you know, and we don't yeah. think these things... Aerosolized. <laughs> yeah, actually, there was a there was a nice paper published in the Journal of Hospital Infection a couple of years ago now by Tim Boswell and colleagues at Nottingham, where they saw the patients walking around on these no slip socks to mm-hmm. stop them falling because yes, yes, they get measured yes, on falling. Um, and so then they went sampling all of the socks, and eighty five percent of them had. VRE on them. And the socks are meant to be worn all the time and the patients then climb on the bed and basically everything was contaminated with VRE even though in the absence of patients. So it might be on the floor, but I know it's on the feet but you do walk around. And actually Curtis Donsky's shown that things on the floor do get aerosolised because he contaminated the floor in a side room with a um, a bit of viral fragment mm-hmm. uh, and you found that all over the nurse's yeah. base the day yeah, after yeah. so I mean I, I, no I'm, it is all connected and I, I I do I mean I I agree with you I just think where we're setting the patient care items is so high risk no I really agree um, with that but but I but it's been shown um you know that shower drains are a problem mm. and it and uh, like I said all the plumbing's connected um and so I don't know. I don't have a solution for that either. No, no. I'm getting a big list of things that I have no idea about and I have no solution for, which isn't great when you're supposed to have some expertise in an area. Uh, so that, that's really difficult. I mean, I mean, how much do you think things will develop to the stage where actually your average laboratory will use some whole genome sequencing? Because I mean, how Stephen Harbath, as part of his talk, talked about, well, what do you sequence, you know, and, and what type of sample are you going to take? And, you know, what's the quality of the the analysis of that mm-hmm. in, in the laboratory? Is that likely to come mainstream where you've got to start to finish process within a few reasonable years? You know, I, I think so. Um, you know, at where I'm at, you know, University of Virginia, our clinical micro lab is doing whole genome sequencing and we're trying to turn those around in five days of okay. receipt of isolate. So, and we'll do that for other hospitals with a report about whether or not we think the isolates are related or not related. And so hopefully, but you know, five days, by the time yeah. you get all of them packaged up and shipped out, you're yeah. probably closer to seven or eight days. And if you go back and you can identify the first isolate, you're probably two months from the start of an outbreak, okay. realistically, right? I mean, just in terms of you and I both done infection control for a while. Yeah. So, you, you know, just practically, um, you can be a little bit out from the first isolate. Sure. Um, but turning it around quickly, especially if you're seeing increased numbers, understanding if they're all the same strain can be quite helpful, I yeah. think. Yeah. And I think it, even if it's not 
even if it doesn't 100% change in a documented way what you're doing, it really gets people's attention. Uh, that was the point I was just about to make. You know, you maybe have got the right interventions in place, but they're not being implemented reliably. Yeah. And if you can say to people, actually, we know this is the case now, then you maybe get more resources to Correct. support what you want to do. And you may be convinced the staff that they actually need to do yes. something about it. Or convince the staff that maybe there isn't an issue. I, I have an example of a C. diff case, right? So I do antimicrobial stewardship. Mm-hmm. And... Our staff is often saying, oh, the C. diff, it's because the environmental services aren't doing a good job and the nursing staff is all up in arms. And I'm like, I think it might be the antibiotic usage. And so we have done some examples to show nursing that actually we don't have a clone of C. diff circulating in our hospital. Right. It seems to be the endogenous C. diff that people come in with and then they get put on, you know, gorillacillin. Yeah. (laughs) And the world drops out of their bottom very shortly afterwards. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Often a negative is as useful Mm -hmm. as a positive, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, And to maybe reinforce the fact that through good practice, because actually we don't often tell people they're doing a good job. So through good practice, they are preventing an endemic clone. Uh, And so keep it up, which is quite useful feedback as well. Okay. And I think, you know, when we think about criminal investigations, we do use forensics DNA fingerprinting. It yeah. doesn't close the case, no. but it can be somewhat, it can be pretty supportive. And well, it, it pushes you down the beyond reasonable doubt yes. argument, doesn't it, yeah. really? That sort of stuff. Okay. Well, this has been really wow. nice. It I've was been lovely. To, we've wanted to talk to you for ages, and we doubtless will talk again because <laughs> yes. uh, I need to take you to the Lake District when you come to the UK sometime. Anyway, <laughs> so you see, it's something yes. other than the drain in the hospital because <laughs> there are bits of the UK that are a little bit more interesting than hospital sewers. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Amy, for giving me just these few minutes. I really uh, appreciate it. This was lovely. Thank you so much, Mark, for your interest, and really had a great time. Thank you. Thanks.